0: Hi guys, welcome back to this week's episode of the Mastering Agility podcast series. This series aims to inspire you and others by bringing in the best people in the business. My name is Sander Dürer and I'm your host. This week marks the launch of our Discord server. We're building a community to collaborate with you guys more, to be more interactive, where you can get inspired more with the best people in the business as well as peers with other people who are interested in agility. We're doing exclusive giveaways for discord members as well. Like books at Neuland markers, uh, we're going to be doing interactive sessions with our speakers, where you can ask your questions during the actual recordings It's going to be awesome. I'll include the link to the server in the show notes. And I hope I can welcome you guys there. Now, speaking of awesome people in this episode, we have James Caplin joining us via mobile internet to talk about empiricism, science, the state of agility in itself. I really love this episode because I really appreciate the way that he speaks so unambiguously, so passionately. I hope you guys really like it too. Let's welcome James. James, thank you very much for joining us today. Really appreciate you making the time. How are things over there?
1: They're cold. It's winter, but uh, we are in northern Denmark, Denmark so I guess that's uh, that's to be expected. And it, uh, it's good to be uh, talking with you face to face here. It's been a long, long time. I think I think last time I actually was in the Netherlands and uh, we met up somewhere, or maybe it was at a conference.
0: That might be the case indeed. But looking back at this winter, I don't know how it is with you guys, but it's not that cold
1: over here. It's a little bit chilly, but there definitely have been colder. No, oh. no, that's true. It's been it's been up and down here, but it's it's down today. Speaking of things going up and down, uh,
0: what I would like to talk to you about today is the current state of things when it comes to agility and how um, these things are perceived. Because things have changed quite a bit since you initiated these kind of things, right?
1: Well, if they hadn't, that wouldn't be very agile, would it?
0: (laughs) That's very true. Definitely. Do you feel that we're going into the right direction when you originally envisioned
1: where we would be going? I think a good way to characterize it is that the uh, the standard deviation is extremely broad, and I'm concerned that the uh, the mean is going quite a bit lower. But with with such a straw uh, uh, such a big standard deviation, it's a little bit hard to assess objectively. I I know that I run into enough individual cases that are in the the lower part of the distribution that it, it gives me cause for concern. So i I am concerned that we need to tighten things up and 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 get back on track. not that we need to reset the clock back twenty five years, but uh that I think we need a good honest assessment of of how we're doing things and how we're moving ahead.
0: I think that's also the the perception that Arief and Benniham had uh, a couple of episodes ago as well um Could you share with us how did you experience this when you were starting? Thinking about agility and making this more, uh, not necessarily formal, but before the whole agile hype, before this whole wave came about, how was it that you came to such a point where you thought, we should be doing this a lot more than the more traditional ways of things?
1: Well, there's several ways of coming at that question. Um I mean a lot of what the foundation was for for scrum and um, and extreme programming was some research that I had done at at Bell Laboratories in the early 1990s when I when I asked exactly that question are we doing things the way that that good software development should be doing it because in the in the 1950s we knew how to do this um I mean before the methods before you know the big IBMs got hold of things and and imposed management and then under the, the methodology hammer of the, of the 1960s, uh, things kind of got slowed down. So, I mean, even in the 1990s, we were, uh, we were looking at, um, development and asking the question in that way and saying, you know, well, are we doing things in the right way? So the question persists today, but it's, it's in a little bit different form. Um, it's, uh, it's the emperor's new, uh, new clothes. I mean the, the current religion is agile and at that time the, the new religions were were waterfall and uh, structured analysis and structured design and so forth. And uh though there are some worrisome, interesting cases where the new religion is uncannily like the old religion, the uh the uh denials of the of the current crowd to the contrary notwithstanding. Um I think we have a, a new a new set of diseases that are that are born of of this new context. Um, and I, I think there's a lack of focus, frankly, on, on the right thing. And I think the, the biggest problem or the top problem is that we're, we're not focusing on, on, on value on, you know, on what it means to really deliver value to our markets and, uh, and to our developers, you know, for, for good, um, good development environments. So we're making them effective and then there's a whole bunch of subcategories, and, and some of them I can look at as a scientist and say, you know, we've we've completely lost touch with science. Um, some of them are just blatant raw opportunism and uh, and attempts by people to to differentiate themselves in the marketplace. So it, they don't have to prove that something is good; they just have to say, you know, I have uh, I have something that's different than anyone else, and that's enough to for them to find a niche. And in this in this market. Where you know compared to the 1960s we've moved into a much more service intensive much more software intensive market. there are more and more players who are looking to get their uh, their shilling out of that market um, and yeah, the market has grown and so to, to to a large degree it's kept up but maybe we're turning a corner and maybe maybe the growth in the market has slowed down or the growth in the in the supply has turned up. Um, So I think the normal laws of supply and demand um, are starting to be broken and and people are breaking them by, by creating their own opportunities and and things are just going nuts. So I don't think there's any given point at which this started. And, and by the way, the way you phrased it, you know, when I, when I started looking at agile, I mean, the, the, the thing I started looking at wasn't agile. It was just, you know, how do we do effective development and, um, and just doing shotgunning kind of research using social network theory and um, and grounded theory development and things like that. Um, agile is a label that got applied to some subset of this later. Um, and in fact, though people would label a lot of what I do is agile, because I mean a lot of what I do is very Scrum related, but also a lot of what I do is architecture related. And uh, I mean I really wouldn't call much of what I do. Agile, uh, in terms of what most people mean by agile. Uh, that was never the goal. And in fact, I mean, there's some interesting percentage of my clients where the problem is that they're agile. They're too agile. They don't have continuity of purpose. They don't have constancy of purpose. Uh, but they just, you know, they, they follow, you know, whatever, whatever wave comes along. And, uh, and yeah, they, they they respond to change or they react to change rather than thoughtfully planning and thinking. So maybe have a follow-up question that's more specific, but just kind of to frame the space, uh, it's, it's broader than just you know looking for some good and agile. And uh, I think this problem of, of not being focused on the prize is a very long-standing problem, and there's nothing really new here.
0: No, exactly. I think that that's uh, that's a really <clears throat> nice way of looking at things, especially where where you mentioned you were looking in into ways of doing things uh, in a better way, create value in a better way. Whereas now, the agile thing, what is commonly accepted to be the agile thing, seems to be more of the end itself rather than a means to an end. Where do you feel that we lost that somewhere? The purpose of value driven rather than just implying and instilling agility.
1: I think a lot of the value came in the the techniques themselves. I mean, a lot of people, you know, blame the frameworks. I mean, I even I, I tend to blame blame Extreme Programming as being kind of the first one that did this. A lot of people blame Scrum. Um, you mentioned Arne. I don't think anyone's blaming DSDM because DSDM wasn't wasn't really big enough. Um, <laughs> But I think there's a thing to be blamed, and I mean it's um, it, it's it's kind of in the same space as as the frameworks, but but things like um, um, things like continuous delivery, um, things like um, basing our quality around unit testing and having all the focus there. So there's a lot of things that are marketable. Um, you can you can you can make a, a market identity for them and therefore consultants can sell them um, tool vendors can sell them i mean a lot of um, a lot of the the interest the early interest in test driven development came came about because um, a couple of folks on an airplane had uh, put together a, a a unit testing framework a unit testing tool and so they knew that the market out there, the new market, this agile market, the post-1990s market, was driven more and more by the developers, um, because developers now had a lot of power in their hands. We now had personal computers. Everyone had the power to develop. We no longer had to go through committees or, or management processes in order to go forward with steps of development. So now developers were making the rules. So, the way you could sell something is by appealing to the the desires and, uh, and opportunities of developers and And so we became very technically focused or we came, became very focused on kind of you know superficial low-hanging fruit. The problem with that is that the problems that we're facing are really system problems and and, and these things are, are are solving very small slices, very individual problems that are part of the whole so i think that this focus on marketability of saleable certifiable um, packageable things ideas um, little memes little nuggets and then and then turning them into you know kind of kind of social mandates like you know you're 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 evil you're not agile if you don't do unit testing um is kind of where it all started going wrong. It's, a, it's an erosion of systems thinking. And again, this is one of those, those subparagraphs to that, that earlier paragraph of value. Rather than focusing external on delivering value to the people that matter out there on, on, the, uh, on the Gemba floor of our, of our customers, we're focused on making our own lives easier as pushers. So it became a pusher's market, Tandra. Uh, we're out there, we're 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 selling drugs. <laughs> well, speaking
0: of drugs with, with a short-term dopamine shot, do you feel that we're currently or a lot of organizations are focusing on the short-term uh, things that they're they're about to do? For instance, when they're trying to do this agile transformation, if you will, it seems to be to me at least that a lot of organizations expect this whole thing this whole change to stick within uh, anywhere between 3 and 6 months while this usually takes a lot longer what's your perception on that
1: i uh, i tend to agree um well with what i think you mean but i do think that that model is worth pursuing because i mean if we 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 know we can do this in the short term we have seen this um and so it's not really a matter of short-term versus long-term, but it's a, it's a it's a matter of shallowness versus depth. And of course, it's easy to do shallow things in the short-term. And people have this feeling that to do deep things, it takes a long time. Well, no, not necessarily. It's a, it's a matter of will. And so, I mean, if you want to divide into cross-functional teams you can do it in a painful low iterative way, incremental way, one person at a time with a lot of stumbling on the way or you can just say guys get together and and form cross functional teams. You have you have 4 hours. You know rent rent an auditorium or something and put people together and say self organize and cross functional teams and just do it. Um, and maybe there'll be a little bit of pain for, you know, um, a couple of cycles, but, but then things will get better and better, and I think we'll soon surpass the, the monolith that was there before. So, yeah, I mean, you, it shows up as a, a, a short-term versus long-term thing, but, but that's a symptom. I think the, the symptom is the courage to, to make the gutsy changes, the, uh, the paradigm shifts that are necessary to, to, to transcend the current way of development. And too often that gets translated into short term, but it needn't be. What's the
0: best example that you've ever experienced uh, in your career so far when it comes to making such a transformation or that, that paradigm shift really stick?
1: Well, again, it's an interesting question because I mean, if the consultant is the one who comes in and makes the paradigm shift stick, that's not very <laughs> agile because agile is about self-management, right? So the example I have, in fact, is there's a uh, there's a company in Germany that uh, they called me in for an architecture course, and uh, I have a, a way of doing architecture that's very amenable to 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 iterations and to to incremental features and and so forth because it separates the the feature software out from the objects. It's called the data um, data context interaction thing. And I was going to teach them the style of doing architecture, and they said, "Oh yeah, we're agile, we're doing Scrum." And I said, "Okay, that's great. What's what's your position?" She says, "Well, I'm I'm the uh, I'm the product manager." <laughs> and I'm like, "Well, okay," <laughs> and it kind of went downhill from there. And uh, I started getting angry, and I said, you know, why in the heck are you guys doing this shit? And they said, well, you know, Stefan, Stefan, our boss, he's making us do this. And I said, I want to talk to Stefan now. And he said, well, you know, we're we're here in Berlin, and he's over in Munich. I said, I don't care. There's a phone. Get him on the phone now. Well, okay. So they called him up and said, well, you know what? He's, he's going to be here in Berlin tomorrow. And he'll meet with us at 11 o'clock. So Stefan came in, and... uh and uh, we explained the problem to him and stuff and said, oh, it's all very simple. And he gave this, you know, bullshit explanation. And I, you know, bit my tongue and talked back at him. Oh, it's all very simple. And he kind of tried to explain it away. And I started getting really angry. And finally, some of the team members started seeing they had some support. So they chipped in and we convinced him. And he sat and he thought and he thought and he says, well, I can't work on this with you this week, but how many of you are willing to work with me next week and solve this. And the person who had brought me in, Catherine, actually broke down and cried. She, she said, we've been trying to get through to Stefan for, for months and months and months, and this is the first time. So I came back there in uh, a few months. I met with the CEO and 50 of his reports. Oh, wow. And and I said, wow, how often do you guys get together like this? And they said, well, this is the first time ever. <laughs> And wow, what, what, what a meeting. this is This is one of the dumbest organizations I've ever seen. And I thought, well, <laughs> I'll, I'll never get invited back here. Oh, we're very agile. We deliver once every six months. All right Two years later, I found a video on on YouTube. They fired the CEO. They fired all the managers they organized as scrum teams and the product owners were running the product. Now, this isn't some snot-nosed little startup. This is Bosch IoT.
0: Oh, wow. Not the smallest of organizations?
1: No. The point is, they did it. So it took... Yeah, I mean, I gave them the kick in the pants. But the point is... This is a really great agile story because it wasn't—it wasn't a consultant spoon feeding them and you know training them and and telling them exactly what path they should follow. I'm sure they brought in some other folks to support them, but <clears throat> and I'm sure that Stefan's leadership. Oh, by the way, Stefan, this idiot manager who I had to talk down—he's the new CEO.
0: What changed for him? What is it that made it change? What is your very direct no, approach to isn't, things? Isn't, this,
1: can, isn't this a beautiful story? I love no, it. No, he just, he, he just got his ego out of the way and said, look, uh, but we want results here. All I care about is results. And he made it happen. Or let me say, he let it happen. You can't make Agile happen, right? Managers cannot help Agile. They can only make it worse. The best thing a manager can do is get out of the way. Now, yeah, they can they can support them with funding and, and all those kind of things if they if they need some specific training or equipment or whatever. But I mean, no, a manager cannot manage an organization to Agile. You, you, gotta, let them, you gotta let them free. And and Stefan did that.
0: But there's there's a need for change if if to really. To be a profound change, right? There must be some desire, some understanding of that. Why? What was that point where Stefan felt that change? Was it your directness? Was it uh, the, the the person broken down into tears? What was that point where he figured, all right, I need to take a step back here?
1: I think it was when the team started chiming in and coming in with with concrete, "We can't do this," or concrete. This is happening, and it's because of you saying this. So I think that that part of the problem is, you know, we... Well, particularly for this company in Germany, right? You still have the German hierarchy. It's worse in Japan. It's impossible in China. It's really, really hard to give upward feedback. It's hard to change the top from the bottom. And I wonder... I used to wonder if if it if it's going to be a matter of the current generation dying out before the the younger generation can take over because you just you can't change the current generation. Um, but I mean uh, we, a- we've been through we've been through a couple of generations of this already that should have happened by now already, right?
0: Yeah, I, I agree with that, even though. I was talking to Jasper Alblas uh, earlier today and I was discussing with him. My therapist mentions, for instance my parents uh my parents are seventy three now' seventy two and they are of the silent generation where feedback was less accepted and it's always more in the more of a macho kind of thing. you suck up your feelings and you do whatever you're told now now we're in a completely different generation where. People go up to the streets to protest and and speak their minds and speak how they feel. So there's a, there's a really big difference in just two or three generations. But that really has to make it stick, and that's really prone to the culture that you're living in as well. And I think that is what really makes it hard to for for that to truly transition. How do you feel about that?
1: Yeah, I don't know. I mean, there there's so many social forces at play. I mean, it's a much smaller world. We have much shorter feedback loops. Um, And there's much, I mean, there's petabytes of information available. Um, The problem is, is that the same mechanisms that make good information and good feedback um, flow also make bad information and bad feedback flow. So I'd, I'd be willing to more strongly entertain your argument if organizations and if commerce and if culture were globally open and global goal-seeking. But I think in addition to the communication being shorter, we're also in a very much a me generation. So rather than people fighting for the social goods, which they did in the 1960s and people were out on the streets protesting and so forth... The current people are, are covering their own ass and, you know, looking for their own individuality and their own family rather than the good of society. And you see this in, in, um, well, in politics, for example, and the, uh, the way that politicians will sell their, their platform is it's good for the individual family and the individual economy rather than, you know, waving the flag and talking about the, the good of the country or the good of humankind, um. The the green movement is a little bit of a, a counter footnote to that, but it's kind of an exception. And I think that if if indeed people were focused on the greater good, we wouldn't need we we we'd be long past the need for a green movement by now. The technology is is available. Um, it's just there are no pressuring economic forces where individuals feel the pain. So. I think there's this lack of, again, it's a focus on the greater good for adding value. And people are afraid to step out and take a risk of doing something that will take value away for them, even if it means more value for the greater good.
0: Makes sense. And hey, coming back to the to the large consultancy firms, as well as, as evolutionary steps, now, Large consultancy firms, and I'm talking about thousands of people here. Uh, they are not really, really easy to change themselves as well. Do you feel? Do you think uh, that the, the really large consultancy firms are a dying breed?
1: Well, I think the large consultancy firms aren't any more of a problem now than they were 30 or 40 years ago. It's the small and middle-sized ones that I that I worry more about because they tend to more easily um, find paths into the venues that have leverage they're more likely to be speakers at conferences I mean you, you, you don't go and looking you don't go to Accenture to find a keynote speaker for an agile conference you just don't they're, they're not industry leaders so the industry leaders are at these small consulting firms or even individual consultants you know, like me um, because they're the ones who are a little bit, more willing to to say things off the beaten path because you know they don't have a constituency that they have to worry about pissing off um, there have been some notable examples in the past like like Grady Booch uh, even he was still pretty careful even though he worked for Rational which was another one of these big um big companies which you know what what happened to them so maybe you're right about them becoming a dying breed <laughs> where's Rational these days i have um, no clue man yeah. Oh. Um. So I mean, there are some exceptions where there'll be a spokesperson, but even Grady was extremely pers- was extremely careful. It's just that um, he very rarely spouted bullshit. Um, yeah. But well, yeah, it's your right. I mean, there, there's the there's the big dumb consultancy firms. I'm, I'm much more mm-hmm. concerned about the 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 middle tier ones because they're the ones who are. How shall I say? Who are defining the social agenda? Who are defining the memes? And um, that's what concerns me. How do you feel?
0: That, how do you think this is going to go forward, or should be going forward? Because this has little to do with actual value, rather than creating a picture that you want to fulfill.
1: Well, the first thing is to recognize that there's a problem, and a uh, a dear friend of mine in Austria named uh, Mike Lieber, called me two days ago and said, yeah, Houston, we got a problem. And, and it's this, okay. And it's this, this whole thing about things are just getting worse and worse and worse. And we know we can do better. And so we put our heads together and we've identified uh, a couple of other people. One of whom is Dutch, by the way. Um, and we're going to put our heads together and say, all right, what, what do we do here? So I don't know, maybe, maybe there's another manifesto maybe we just uh we be, we go uh we go kind of underground and we start making some uh some videos that we that are high quality videos that we get out there you know for free uh to to help set the record straight you know with 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 some kind of uh, media movement uh i don't know there's there's a bunch of ideas floating around but what i feel is we've come to the realization that there's a problem. And I need to take a long walk in the woods and have a a good think about this, but I think it's a lot broader than just software. Um, I'll maintain that what's at stake here is all of science. And my fear over the past two years is that science has really taken a beating. and The reason is COVID. So, you know, the vaccines came out and uh, everyone said, oh, science will, will save us. The vaccines keep us from, from getting sick. If you have the vaccine, you can't transmit the, uh, the illness. Um, here are some scientific analyses that show what an unvaccinated population would do in the UK. All of these are bullshit. The people who made the vaccines never said that it'll keep you from getting the disease. They never said it'll no. keep you from being contagious. All of these were things that in the name of science, society made up and the journalists took off and said, science has said this. And then the policymakers and the government took off and said, well, we're going to act accordingly and they require mass and require vaccinations and all of this. So, yeah, vaccinations are important for at-risk population, you know, for for the elderly, for those with marginal health, and so on and so forth. But, I mean, the scientific evidence for, for vaccinating the rest of the population just isn't there. Now, just now, like, like I mean now, I mean like this week, you're starting, you're starting finally to see Letters to the editor and journal articles and journalists saying, hey, wait a minute. What we're seeing now in the numbers is contrary to what the policymakers and the so-called scientists have been telling us for two years. What's going on here? (laughs) So I think there's a great awakening going on. Now, my, my concern is, um, I mean, Mary Poppendick says that the, the pendulum of change is not a pendulum. It does not swing from side to side. It slams from side to side. Um, my concern is, is that the pendulum might slam the other way and and science will look at a black eye. Um, I'm, at, I'm honestly not worried about Agile getting a black eye. The stakes are too high. Um, it should have gotten a black eye a long time ago um but i do think there can be some kind of awakening there and as there has been an awakening in the medical world about the fact that uh we we we've been sold a bill of goods here the past 2 years by the government and the press not the scientists scientists Could you are cool that?
0: They are. Could you imagine how incredibly frustrating it must be to be a scientist at this point where you've been studying your whole life, you've done your PhD, I don't know what kind of research you've been doing, and then these journalists and and Facebook warriors come up and say this is bullshit or give a completely different message to the things that you're trying to conceive or to to perceive and and to bring across. Uh, Exactly like what you were saying. I mean, in this country, in the beginning, it was indeed... Uh, the message was this is going to make the severity of consequences of COVID uh, less harsh when you take the vaccine. It's not going to stop people from getting infected. It's not going to stop people from yes. getting ill. It's going to make the consequences of being ill less. It's going to ta- reduce the likelihood of you ending up in hospital or worse, in IC, or people dying.
1: Exactly right.
0: Luckily, that and has been the is. case. But People still seem to distill out of that message that you're not going to get sick, you're not going to be spreading stuff, you're you're not going to be able to still be infectious. What could we do to reduce that? Because that's empiricism as well, right? It's the whole way of dealing with such a pandemic.
1: So you asked me if I knew how, how frustrating it must feel. In full disclosure, you know who one of my clients is?
0: I'm betting Pfizer, a
1: yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yep. And actually, I have a very, very, very distant cousin who's a uh, vice president in, Mo- in Modena. But oh. I don't even think he knows we're related. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, the, these guys are scientists. They're not politicians, right? And they're, they're just doing their best is as far as I can see. Yeah, I know. I mean, they've gotten their hands slapped for for doing some some naughty things in the past. I mean, they're they're not they're not just babes in arms, but I mean, this time around, I mean, they're just they're they're doing their best, and the the policymakers are are making hash of this. Now, I also feel that this is true for for agile. the 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 nice thing, <laughs> yeah, the nice thing about the the medical industry is that we have nice metrics like body count, and full beds. We ain't got those metrics in software. Oh, yeah, software is also easy to measure. It's just that the measurements don't mean anything. Yeah. Right? And that's that's the the problem.
0: Exactly. People are not seeing the consequences with software development as as visually and, and tangibly when compared to when people are dying or are hospitalized. So the level right. of severity to respond to those metrics is less I feel.
1: Now there's a whole bunch of things that work together and you can't point to any one of them as a root cause, but this is an immensely interesting system and it kind of works like this. So the problem is is that software is perceived like medicine. As having extremely high value. So, I mean, if you go in the U.S., I mean, they can charge an arm and a leg because they're going to save your life. I don't know if you know about this case, about this uh, this guy who, uh, he was called Mr. Pharma or something like that, who took like a $17 thing of medicine and overnight uh, increased the price to, uh, to several hundred euros to increase his yeah, profits. Yeah, for the... Because...
0: Yeah, it was for the HIV uh, medicine. If I, uh, I uh, what's his
1: name again? Yeah, it, it, yeah, it's something. It's not an HIV medicine per se, but most of the people who took it were HIV patients who were taking it for for some other particular reason. But yeah, it was basically for the HIV crowd. And yeah, I mean, he got thrown in prison, right? Because um, um, he just he increased the price. Software is a lot the same way. Is that we charge. Unreasonably high fees for the software we build. There's no reason we need to charge the amount of money we charge for the software we build. I mean, one of the most successful video games was done what by by one guy. Where is he? He's in Sweden, in Finland. I can't remember what's the video game here. Um, it's it's kind of a um, it's a role-playing game with kind of a, a virtual land. You can you know make your own cities and so on and so forth. Oh, Minecraft! But one guy, huh? You mean Minecraft? It, is it Minecraft? Maybe it's Minecraft. But it's one guy who made that,
0: that and I mean it drove it?
1: him nuts because he was making so much money that it drove him crazy. The pressure was too high, so he kind of he kind of stopped it for a while. I think he's back. Um, but we have places, you know, where we have thousands of individuals making software which is one thousandth as complex. And why do we do this? Why does a dog lick its genitals? <laughs> what a great comparison. Because it can, right? <laughs> and so you, you build this stuff and because you can sell it for a lot of money, ooh, now you got a lot of money. What are you going to do with the money? Well, the managers say, oh, wow, this is really valuable and makes a lot of money. We must need a lot of people. So they hire a lot of people and you get this, this, this self-fulfilling death spiral that creates an ever-larger industry. So I think that all the software that we produce as an industry could be done with one-tenth or one-hundredth of the of the, of the the people at 10 times the speed and much higher quality. What do we what need to take it away from that? He-
0: huh? Yeah, exactly that. What is it slowing down? What should we take away to get there?
1: So it's it's hard because, I mean, I don't know. I mean, uh, I I like what my old boss said is that you know, um, uh, software is is charity for the middle class. It's uh, right. It's uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, welfare. <laughs> software is welfare for the for the middle class. It keeps it keeps a lot of people employed and. And gives a lot of people income that they that ordinarily they wouldn't have income. They'd be on the streets or something like that. Um, so I think to fix this is a momentous social change, which means a social or at the level of the whole economy, a devaluation of software and a revaluation on things of of real value like like nature. And education, and humane living environments, and child care, and mental health, and and all of these kind of things. Um, I don't know who the market is that this podcast will go to. I think um, you know we we here in Denmark understand this very very well. I suspect the Netherlands is very very similar in terms of social infrastructure and support for for social causes. <laughs> United States is clueless. And I mean, to a first approximation, that's where the bulk of the world's software is coming from. And so I think we're looking at that level of change to the value proposition in the economy and to, to reformulating things. So we start building software with small crack teams of, of great programmers rather than, you know, just taking someone off the street and 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 putting them through a 2-day scrum course and a 6-month certification course on Java and saying, well, okay, you're now a career programmer. My gosh, it takes 7 years in Denmark to learn how to be a plumber to put a damn toilet in my house. <laughs> how much training does it take before you can write Java code that will f- that will control the flight of an airplane with hundreds of lives at stake. There's I think that has something to do wrong with, with short this.
0: term. Has a lot to do with the short term thinking that we were discussing earlier. Indeed, what you're saying with with the um, expectancy of people to go into a two day course and now you're the expert. I think that's a very dangerous thing, as well as people driving the wrong agendas. Uh, the the name that we were looking for, by the way, popped to mind it was Martin Shkreli, uh, who who changed that. Um, Uh, the the price overnight of the medicine of the, I don't know what the exact medicine was, but it has Ah, a lot to do with pushing that agenda of those stakeholders. The only, the only reason indeed why he changed the price was to please his stakeholders, to get more return on investment for stakeholders. Indeed, the the price went from $3 to, uh, 314, which is, it's good that he's in prison. He's criminal. Uh, he, he has no remorse for it. But that's really pushing that agenda. And that has to do, I think that's stopping uh, that momentous change as well, is the understanding of what's important. And I think that we, we as a current, especially the Western society, are too lazy at this point. We do everything to make our lives less active and to have as least of uh, uh, physical activity that we needed to perform to re- achieve our goals, but how could we possibly change that?
1: Yeah, you're right, and that's that's the level of change that I'm afraid that we're talking about in order to 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 solve this problem. Again, it starts with the value proposition, and then it comes down to the fact that software is a false economy. That you know the amount of money is disproportionate to the amount of work that's being done. I mean, farmers, in some sense, it's an honest economy. If I'm going to sell vegetables and you know I I grow my own vegetables and sell them, in some sense, it's it's fair because the amount of work I put in is going to give me enough work to support my family and you know feed my children and uh, pay for my house and things like this. Um, you look at software people; it's it's enough to buy castles. Um, (laughs) or, or maybe to buy three houses or something like that. Um, (laughs) so I I think it's just crazy.
0: It is. It is. Um, yeah, the, I think the, one of the first things that my trainers, when I was doing my first course, my first two day course before I was expected to be an expert, uh, mentioned to me was, we're going to teach you common sense, but somewhere we lost common sense, right? Yeah, and I think that's that's the hardest thing to really to really give back, and that's what materializes with the way that people perceive the message from pharmaceutical companies. Like you're not going to get sick. No, that's that's not what we said. It reduces the the, uh, the likelihood of you getting sick, but it's really a big change, and uh, it requires people like you to really push that to be bold, rather than sticking to the, the popular opinion.
1: Yeah, but it, but it is complex. I mean, the good thing about the the COVID comeuppance and about the dysfunction is that I, I really do think you know the government folks are doing their best, and they are concerned about the the broader society. I think. I mean, even though that. Uh, <laughs> um, Certain politicians in the UK will still sit around and drink wine without masks and social distancing while forcing everyone else to do it. But that, to the contrary, notwithstanding, I think the politicians are 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 again they're uninformed. But given the information they have, they're trying to you know they're trying to protect all of society. Yeah. And even even with common sense you need that because that isn't common sense. Or if it is common sense, common sense is so uncommon. I, I, I think you need the social vision that we need to do what's, what's going to be good for the world. And so this gets into more of an ecological view, um, a systems thinking view, um, a view where we're breaking down walls between institutions um, and, and thinking about you know how, how we can work together Rather than my company outdoing yours, or me as a consultant outdoing you in the market, or um, and I mean, I, I, I see this individual thinking all the time. Um, I'm a I'm a certified Scrum trainer, and my gosh, you should see some of the competition among uh, Scrum trainers. I mean, it, it's even to the point where um, the Scrum certification entity had to send out a mail to the trainers about antitrust saying, you know, you guys can't be dividing up the market and agreeing among yourselves that you're going to take this part of the market and I'm going to take this part of the market and do price fixing. I mean, my gosh, I mean, if if you need to tell people and give people rules to do that and not presume on their goodwill to do the right thing, it's game over.
0: Yeah, that's terrible. Breaking that the individualism as well as capitalism, which is a huge, huge problem as well, that's going to be a massive challenge. Also, coming back to what you were saying about mandating uh, masks while the person itself, my, uh, our dear friend Johnson, uh, was having parties in his backyard. It's the same person who is now pleading for dropping face masks everywhere because of the numbers are going down. So it's fun to see how that oh, all intertwines.
1: I hadn't heard that. Really?
0: Yes, I just I just read it the two minutes before this but recording. No,
1: no, no, they're no, dropping no. everything. Why? Why? It it'll make him because popular. we're now going into on. more
0: <laughs> because we're now going more into a, of a, an an endemic state rather than a pandemic. Yep. So because yep. of the omicron variant being less less terrible and less less harsh, we can now start dropping all these mitigations. And it's the same for Spain, by the way. But it's so contrary, contradictory that he's in the one day he's partying with his, in his backyard with way too many people there's a backlash and suddenly a different agenda is being pushed so that's, that's uh, it's sketchy
1: that's 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 precious i hadn't heard that
0: <laughs> well there
1: you go i, I mean I in general again it. in general i do think the government people are doing their best given the information they have i do think they're being unbelievably irresponsible about being informed and now we're back to our world again because if you look, I mean, you look at the talking heads, and I won't mention names. I'm really, really tempted to <laughs> on Twitter or on LinkedIn or whatever. I mean, there's one in particular who says, you know, estimation is, is crazy. Uh, estimation doesn't work. And I've been arguing with this, this with him for a couple of years because, you know, for me, and you know, my teams, the estimation is great and has a lot of side benefits as well. And I finally figured out why. He finally posted something on LinkedIn that says, well, when I estimate user stories, I said, wait, stop. You don't estimate user stories. Those are requirements. What do you mean you estimate requirements? You estimate the effort for the solution. You don't estimate requirements. No wonder your estimates aren't working. And so... And this guy's like, you know, he's often cited as a world authority on Agile. He kind of backed into Agile when he found out he wasn't making enough money off of architecture. Um, He gets invited to a lot of conferences and he just says these preposterous, you know, things and people gravitate to him because he can differentiate himself in the marketplace because he's saying with force things that no one else is saying and that tend to feed on people's um, people's experience that, well, you no, know, I tried this and it doesn't work. And this is where the common sense argument gets into trouble because people will do what they do out of common sense. And a lot of the deep stuff is not common sense. And this is why I tend to shy away from agile because agile is all the shallow, stupid stuff. The deep stuff that you find for example in scrum and i'm not i'm not here to sell scrum there's a lot of other things that are that are just as good but um an example i like to to give is people people in software like to use five whys do you know five whys yeah so what's the purpose of five whys
0: and what they're perceiving or what they're trying to to get across is to figure
1: out what the root causes and what what to do next so does a problem in an adaptive complex system have a root cause?
0: Oh, that's a great question. What's
1: the root cause? Yes. What's the root cause of the weather today?
0: It depends who you ask.
1: This is this is bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> no, there is something Elaborate. called five. There is something called five whys. And it comes out out of the Toyota production system, or at least they're using it a lot. So I have a problem. Well, why? Because of this. Well, why? Because of this. And you keep asking why, and it's not five, but you keep asking why until there's a loop in the question and answer cycle. That is, you come back to one of the questions where you've already been before. You fix the problem by breaking that loop. That's the essence of a complex adaptive system. You don't find a root. That's an American thing. Why, do, why would you want to find the root? So you know who to fire. So you know who to dock their salary for.
0: <laughs> I never looked at this see, like that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be thinking I, about this.
1: Oh, but there's, there's dozens of things like this that the agile talking heads are talking about. Tons and tons of things, and I mean, you know, this is I try to get this stuff out of my training, you know, to try to to disband people from these these stupid these stupid models. Um, another big part of the problem is, um, I mean, a lot of Scrum came out of the auto industry, and. Um, And so, you know, software never grew up. It never got its own identity. And it's always looked to something else. I mean, computer science looked to science. It wanted to be a science. Well, forget that. Software engineering looked to engineering. Look, I'm an engineer. I'm an electrical engineer by training. And I know that software engineering is not engineering. All right? And computer science is not a science. I mean, there is a little bit of computer science, but it's irrelevant. I haven't had to solve the halting problem in a long time. But they, they always looked to somewhere else, and they were looking to the auto industry. So we had the oil crisis in the U.S., and uh, some consultants came over from Japan, basically to avoid antitrust, to avoid being accused of having a monopoly, and to kind of, mm-hmm. kind of share with their friends. So they came to Detroit and they told them some stuff, right? So first of all, there was a, a, a problem with cultural relativism, is that you know the Japanese and the Americans had had problem communicating. But in fact, the, the Japanese consciously withheld some stuff and in effect gave misinformation. And I mean, the, the root cause analysis was one of these. The whole notion about, about uh, Kaizen, about removing impediments, is another. You don't get flow by removing rocks from the, from the bottom of the river. You get flow by increasing the amount of water in the river.
0: Depending, depending on
1: the walls as well of the of the riverbed, there must oh, yeah. be and you the invest, wiggle room. Invest, you you invest in the walls. You don't you don't just go around removing rocks, but and then a couple of people at Harvard made a big study on this called Rus and Romac, and they wrote a book called The Machine That Changed the World, and Lean was born, and they kind of destroyed the core of all the value that came out of the Toyota production system. And everyone has followed lean, including most people who follow Scrum. Now, by the way, Jeff Sutherland knows the difference. He gets this. (laughs) And, And he knows that this whole lean thing is a lie. So, I mean, this isn't Scrum's fault. But again, it's people who, you know, by association, are uh, now looking to the superficial Western view of what's going on in Japan and saying, oh, we need to do that too. Um, that's causing tons and tons and tons of of, of mispractice. So, I mean, I, I spend most of my time in Japan. That's, that's where I do most of my business these days. So I'm, I'm there with them, learning from them directly and them from me um, and going deep into their culture. Now you want to talk culture and the need for cultural change? Wow, I mean, you know, to be able to to adapt the the perspectives of Japanese culture—that that's a whole nother ball game.
0: Um, Maybe we can talk about this in another podcast. Because looking at the time as well, uh, it's it's funny to see with myself if if I hear you talking like this, especially with so much passion. It's it's funny to see with myself how conditioned I get by, for instance, by LinkedIn or your posts or the courses and, and just take things for granted, not seeing a different perspective. So I pr- really appreciate you, um, opening my eyes to different perspectives in this as well, and that's what I appreciate with your posts, for instance, on LinkedIn, they go to into uh, the, the mass uh, opinion as well. That's what I really appreciate now for people who yep. want to learn more about you and want to learn more about your, uh, your style, your experience. Where can people find you? Where can people interact with
1: you? I'm I'm pretty easy to find on on LinkedIn or Twitter. Um, My email is J Copleen J C O P L I E N at uh, Gmail. Um, But I'm pretty easy to find, and uh, you know I'm um, certainly would would uh, invite. I will not even call it respectful dialogue. I mean, I, I love passionate dialogue. I mean, that, that's how I learn. Um, Bertrand Meyer taught me everything I know. Um.
0: <laughs> uh, then you got to be respectful for the passion, which would be a respectful discussion uh, in itself. James, I mean, thank you very much for being oh, here d- today.
1: I, yeah, go ahead. All right. Great. No, thanks. Thanks for inviting me. This has been fun. Uh, definitely
0: thank you very much again enjoy your day
1: all right you too thanks
0: was that awesome or wasn't it i hope you guys appreciated the passion and enthusiasm just as much as i did and i'm pretty sure we'll be talking to james in the future as well now again thank you guys for being here for being our guests for listening again i hope you guys are going to join the discord community as well that we can build world domination together Link included in the show notes, as well as more information about James and where you can find him, where you can interact with him. I'm looking forward to talking to you guys on the Discord community. See you guys there.